Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Plug In Colorado. I am your host, Deanna Morton. And I'm your co-host, Andrew Morton. That's right. Andrew is co-hosting this episode and possibly future episodes. Depending on if we uh, get another mic. It takes a village, people, or in this case, it takes a marriage, (laughs) right? To pull a podcast through. It's true. It's true. So, Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit about this episode's interviewee, Becca Smith. She was awesome. I, the way I self-promoted myself to co-host was I kept wanting to jump in on questions. And so you'll hear me kind of shouting in at the side of uh, Deanna's mic for uh, quite a bit of this. Uh, I found it fascinating. She is a juggler and clown. She just came back from a trip to South Sudan where she was performing in refugee camps with Clowns Without Borders. Um, We talk about when she went to clown school. We talk about um, just how she's learned so many different things. Um, You know, just some great kind of like life life lessons. Um, So, hey, Andrew, why don't we just jump right into the interview? I think that's a great idea. Without further ado, I bring you Becca Smith. Becca, thank you so much for joining us at Plug in Colorado. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I actually want to start off with um, how you define your job, because off mic, I called you an entertainer and engineer Andrew called you a clown. So what would (laughs) you say you do? That's an awesome question, because I think you know, there's an identity for every sort of, you know, hobby or skill or whatever you're into. And sometimes I say circus artist. Circus artist. Um, I like that. More generally, I call myself a juggler because that's how I got into this world. And juggling is more than just a job for me. It's, it's my life in a lot of ways. Um, but then clown is also a very fair word. I get hired to be a clown a lot. It's just kind of a persona that I put on. And entertainer can be strange. You know, if my mother is listening to this podcast oh, yeah. and she hears me I, being I did called not an entertainer, mean it you like know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I did not mean it like that. I just meant I know, you right? bring entertainment to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is also an awesome word, but it's funny the preconceptions that people have of different words. Even clown sometimes has a negative connotation for people depending on where they saw it or how they interacted with the clown. Right. Because... My negative connotations are just kind of scary, maybe it clowns. Mm. So, from TV and stuff. Yeah, but do you think clown means you put on makeup and have a red nose, or what, how would you define clown or clowning? Is that proper? Yeah, definitely. And you could define it different ways. I mean, there's a clown costume that you can buy at the store and you can be a clown for Halloween. Um, it can go a lot deeper than that. You know, a clown is someone at heart that has love and laughter to share for anybody. And, you know, that kind of a clown, I think, is a really admirable person. And you can get a lot of inspiration from someone who defines himself as a clown. So then how did you get into clowning or juggling? Ah, uh, juggling? Juggling I started doing when I was a freshman in college. And I just taught myself to juggle randomly with hacky sacks. And did you see someone, were you next to someone who was doing it or? No, no. I just, um, I had seen a book about juggling a long time ago when I was a little kid and I kind of memorized what it was going to look like. And years and years later, I finally figured it out and I figured out the pattern. I taught myself to juggle and, um, I didn't think anybody else in the world did this thing. And I eventually found other jugglers and that's (laughs) kind of where (laughs) there's a big community of jugglers all over the world. And, That's where I started learning more about juggling and circus and clowning and things like that. So then take us a little bit how you're learning to juggle and you're a freshman to um, making it your profession. Wow. Can you, well, I know that's, that's going, that's kind of going through a lot of chapters. So you learn to juggle and you start with a hacky sack and then do you just move on? Yeah. You know, for me, I was just... Yeah, I just was just self-taught. I, some people go to circus school and, you know, then they have a career in juggling. But I was learning, um, I was 
Sorry, I was studying to be an accountant. Oh my goodness. And when I graduated, I decided that I didn't want to do that. I had way I too much energy. Even, I just met you. I couldn't even imagine you as an accountant. <laughs> I'll take that Although as a big maybe, compliment. Yeah, maybe we need more accountants like you. <laughs> no offense to accountants. <laughs> right. They deserve all the respect. Exactly. It wasn't for me. <laughs> and so did you decide um, when you finished college that it wasn't for you? Or did you kind of decide in the middle of college that you were going to kind of change the path of your life? I didn't really have much of a plan after college, like a lot of people. And I ended up moving to Colorado just to be around more jugglers. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I live to Boulder in, in particular? Or? Yeah, Boulder has a circus center. Wow. And an amazing juggling club and an annual juggling festival. Wow. The things you learn on this podcast. <laughs> so when's the annual festival? We just had it. It was oh. a couple weekends ago, Father's oh. Day. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so there's like a big turnout and jugglers come from around the country or the world? Sometimes from around the world, usually from the U.S. This year we had guests from Canada. Oh, <laughs> very foreign. <laughs> yes. And so like, I'm going to get a little bit male, female here. So is it interesting being a female because you juggle, like, for example, you juggle fire and you do dangerous stunts or it it appears to be dangerous. Is it interesting being, um, a female, um, juggler versus like, are the majority men? Definitely. The very vast majority are men, both in the juggling world and in the entertainment community in general. Um, so yeah, it's a little strange, I suppose, f- maybe for people who are viewing me from the outside yeah. and they're used to seeing men in that kind of entertainment right. position. For me, it's I'm just doing my show like I always yeah. do. And, and, and I'm thankful that there's been other people who have kind of paved the road. There's some awesome female jugglers. The, the first woman to win the juggling championships is from Boulder. Really? Mm-hmm. Do you, what's her name? Cindy Marvel. And how old is she right now? Um, I, I, or is that not sure? (laughs) Yeah. She's older than me, but not by much. Yeah. 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 And so you know her? Yeah. Yeah. She's the owner of the circus center. So how do you, so how do you win like a juggling competition? Well, there's different kinds of competitions for one thing. Um, there's like, you know, specific, who's juggling the most number of things. Jeez. How, what's like a high number? 11 people are juggling now, maybe even more. I'm not very current on that. <laughs> yeah. But there's different sorts of championships. I actually won the busking competition a few years wow. ago, um, which was really, really a fun competition. And then there's the overall stage championships, which is kind of the big one that people are vying for. And um, yeah, yeah, the first lady to win that. She lives here in Boulder. That's amazing. Are there any juggling competitions that we should be aware of in co- Colorado that are coming up? Not in Colorado. The next international juggling competition is in two weeks in Iowa this year. And are you going to go? No, I'm not able to go this year. Okay. I'm performing. I'm gigging. Ooh. (laughs) So let's talk about gigging. Um, And more importantly, um, you just came back from the Sudan. Yes. And you did something called Clowns Without Borders. Can you explain to the listeners what Clowns Without Borders is? Sure. Well, Clowns Without Borders is um, a group of volunteers, and there's there's different groups in every country, and they basically have this mission to bring laughter as a form of trauma healing, as a form of just a way to connect with people who have been through crises, and um, they take shows to different parts of the world, different places, especially refugee populations, um, different violent conflicts. Uh, there's a team that's just about to go to um, to Turkey to work with the Syrian refugees. And there's a lot of projects that go to the Congo, South Sudan we've been to a number of times, um, Haiti. So this wasn't your first trip with them? This was my first like out-of-country trip. I had been on a teaching trip to Dallas where a lot of refugees are resettled. And we worked with some kids there teaching circus and clowning and just playing laughter games. And so I did that one first. 
And then this trip to South Sudan was my first big project. So what is that trip like? Well, each trip is a lot different. The one that I went on was, um, it's kind of a unique trip. It was probably the farthest into the real crisis danger zone that Clowns Without Borders has ever been. So we, we went first to the capital city of South Sudan, to their small kind of rundown airport. And, you know, the local humanitarian groups are the ones who are hosting us and showing us our accommodations they're providing for our stay. Um, and then we actually had a private charter flight that took the clowns from camp to camp because they don't have a lot of, you know, regularly scheduled flights. Um, and so we were just kind of hopping to different refugee camps. We would be at, uh, for example, we went to Bentu, where there are 120,000 people at the refugee camp. And something like 80% of them are under 10 years old. And so we were at that camp for a week doing workshops with the adults who work with kids, teaching them laughter, healing games, and just helping them find play and laughter again. You know, it's a pretty intense situation, even despite the conflict. It's also, there's famine. It's just people are crowded into these areas. And um, so, yeah, we would be at these places for a week, and then we would go to the next site and connect with a whole different team, see what, what their needs are, where we're going to be performing, <laughs> usually in the middle of a gigantic soccer field. And then how, how did the kids respond at first to how they responded after they got to know you? Oh, good question. Well, it was different from place to place. When we were in the capital city of Juba, they were a little bit more familiar with foreigners and they were a little bit more familiar with the idea of a performance. And so it was very well received there instantly. And some of the other places we went to where these kids are from, you know, they're, they're from a very out distant place and some of them have never even seen a vehicle before. And so they were timid for about 10 seconds. <laughs> and then they were laughing and loving it. Yeah, how do you break the ice with them? Like what's the first thing you do? We, we're a very gentle sort of clown, when, especially in places like this. And so we're actually, you know, we're walking out onto the performance area, the stage, the football field. We're walking out very slowly and we're making eye contact and we're, we're smiling. We're just being there with them, being present with them just long enough so that they know that we're not a threat. We're not there to hurt anybody. And then we just jump into it. We just start being silly. We start juggling. We start, you know, making fools of ourselves. And it just goes from there. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just wish I had a mic and kind of interject. What, what are you guys dressed like? What do, you, what do you look like? What do they see when you guys start the performance? Well, this hat that I'm wearing here, this funny blue hat, was part of my costume. Um, most of us are wearing just very light makeup just a little bit around the eyes to make them a little bit more visible, a red nose, and then just colorful suspenders and colorful pants. And we chose to have a kind of a blue color scheme on this trip because we felt that it would be calming compared to red, orange. And um, so how is it that, you know, every day you kind of have to go out there and bring joy and happiness, but you're, you're somewhat taking... It's, there's an emotional heaviness to it that you're taking on. So how are you able to, I don't want to say wash away that heaviness, but kind of download that heaviness and kind of re freshen yourself up emotionally every day to, to bring 110% joy to these children? It was, it was hard in some cases to, to keep it light when what I'm feeling inside is just a lot of turmoil because of the situation. Um, but in a lot of ways, the kids themselves really helped with that and the adults as well. We would show up to the place where we were going to be performing and everybody is just clapping and cheering and dancing and their smiles are huge and it's just infectious. You know, it, it was almost like we were creating all of the joy together. <clears throat> so with Clowns Without Borders, you have clowns from all over the world. Yeah. And is everyone speaking English? 
Yeah, all of the clowns speak English at least a little bit. And And yeah, how do you um, plan your performance that you're going to do? Well, what we did on this particular occasion, I think is pretty standard. We all came with ideas. Some of us had solo acts that we thought we could just plug into the show. But we arrived in South Sudan with just a couple days to rehearse together, to put together a 45-minute show that we were going to perform. So a lot of it was just kind of improvising and figuring out how we play together. You know, is there one clown that's kind of the funny, low-status clown that always gets picked on and stepped on, you know? Do people volunteer for that role? Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's a really fun role to play. (laughs) So what clown would you say you were over there? Um, I was... I felt like I was more of a higher status clown. Um, For me personally, it's hard for me to come across as really stupid. The audience just knows better for whatever reason. Some clowns can just fall over over and over again, and the audience believes it every time. But for me, I'm more of of a high status clown. And so in a lot of cases, I'm creating situations where, you know, I'm picking on a clown or I'm, you know, telling them to stop doing that thing. And that makes the audience get on that clown's side. The side of the low-status clown or yeah. the high-status? Yeah, yeah, they start to get upset at me because I'm ruining all the fun of this other clown when really that's, that's the game. You know, I'm you know, working to get the audience on their side so we can all laugh and have fun. And, and so it's, I mean, I guess it's kind of that like authority figure where then you kind of are the adult in the kind of relationship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Are there other sort of like archetypes that the clowns will kind of play? Yeah, yeah. There's there's a couple archetypes. There's um, there's kind of a like a Buffon character, which is a really strange archetype. It's a clown that makes fun of the audience actually, and they do it in a way that's kind of therapeutic. They're pointing out just the dumb things about society. How would you do that in the Sudan? That one was such an intense <laughs> situation. That's a good point. I don't think that that was yeah, yeah, very yeah. well. I'm not there. trying to anyway. <laughs> I was really maybe, good point. yeah. Well, I was just wondering, like, wow, that's that's pretty interesting. That's pretty highbrow too. That one's really hard for people to handle. Can you do that role? Not very well. That one's hard for me emotionally because I don't like making fun of people, even if it's all in good humor, even if they like it. It still is hard for me. But another clown archetype that I think is really fun is just the, like, just the low-status clown, the, the clown that just can't do anything right. And the people who play that clown really well are just can have so much fun trying to drink a glass of water and just failing at it in so many hilarious ways. So in clowning, do you, you don't talk to each other? Definitely we can, yeah. In some cases, okay. some clowns have a voice. Some clowns are too stupid to be able to talk. It's kind of a wide range. I talk. So what would, do you have a different <laughs> voice or? No, I don't really. So you just talk like this and. Yeah, it's pretty normal. I kind of talk with, you know, maybe just a little bit more energy than I normally do. Yeah. And things run together a little bit more, but it's still kind of the same voice. Yeah. Um, for the stuff in the Sudan, like how much. I mean, I guess it's got to be more, it's almost got to be more like a mime there, right? Because I'm guessing there's like a language barrier and yeah, how's it going to kind of carry across that? Yeah. Almost all of the show that we did there was just nonverbal. You know, we had music in the background. In some cases, we made our own music with a bandero and a trumpet and other silly instruments, but, um, there were a few words that we learned how to say in the local languages so that we could really communicate what we were trying to do. So when you're performing in um, either a place like the South Sudan or even just an audience, do you sometimes target maybe a kid or just one audience member that you really just try to change their mood and you do you focus on that at all or? Yeah, I think that's a really powerful thing. There's one act that I was doing in South Sudan where I invite a kid from the audience to come up on stage and I signal to them to climb on top of my shoulders. And then while the kid's on my shoulders, I ride on the unicycle in circles on the stage. And the whole point, (laughs) the whole point of that act is just to give that moment to one person. 
you know, because everyone else, they get to watch it, they get to see it, and they get to feel what they might want to do. They might want to be there in that place. But for that one person, I feel like you can really, really make a big difference. Give them an amazing experience. Do you feel like you're a sensitive person? Huh. In what way? Well, I'm just wondering, like, so, because, um... Because you're, so I just am speaking, like thinking of the South Sudan and maybe this is me being like what you're talking about. Like I could never do that. And I'm not trying to say that, but like, again, it's just like, it's so beautiful. I don't know what I'm trying to say. It's just, I don't know. Never mind. It's just (laughs) like, and I feel like you are because of what you do, but to go in to that situation and you know, you have to, you're, you're, you want, you're one of how many people clowns and you're getting everyone's energy up. And, but you're, are you trying to absorb like their strife and struggle as well? Or do you have to like kind of keep a little bit of a wall up too? Yeah, you definitely, at least for me, I definitely had a wall up, you know, where I was, I was seeing what was around me. I was seeing the living situations. I was seeing, you know, starving children everywhere. Um, but when the show was happening and we, when we were connecting with the kids, I'm telling you their faces light up so hard that you can't think of anything else. It's really just having fun with everybody. And, um, it sounds so bad. I was like, are you a sensitive person? But you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, I think Cause so. It, it is like being, um, <clears throat> for better terms, like a, a cancer doctor where you just really have to like go mm. in there. Cause I just went through, um, my mom, my stepmother is in remission for cancer and I was mm, with her as right. her caregiver mm. and just seeing the doctors kind of go in and what fascinated me, not the most about the whole process, but one of the things that fascinated me is the ability to be in that situation where you're like, the morale is down and then you have to like, you're, you, you have on your shoulders, like you have to have the hope and the joy Yeah, that is possible with something like that. Yeah. You know, to be honest, it, um, I spent more time recovering from that trip than I was actually there. It took about a month and a half for me to kind of just readjust to being back at home, readjusting to the sorts of things that people talk about and the things that they care about and the things that people, even just little complaints, you know, it was really hard to readjust to all of those things when I got home, when I felt like, do you see all of the things that are happening? These, these big burdens. And yeah, I, I feel like clowns who've been on these trips more often, they, they have better strategies to deal with that sort of thing when they come home and clowns without borders has an amazing support network and they really support the artists when they're there and afterwards for that exact reason. Um, but what I think is interesting, you were talking about kind of needing to bring the energy for people who are kind of down. And in my experience, the people over there were so much more ready for fun than any audience I've ever had here in the United States that I feel like I have to push a lot harder to bring the energy to audiences here (laughs) than I did there. The people in South Sudan came with so much energy and lightheartedness and they were just ready. Where were the um, clowns from in the South Sudan? Well, this was a really cool and unique project because we had a collaboration with three different chapters of Clowns Without Borders. The United States chapter, the Finnish chapter, and the chapter from South Africa. And so we had actually six different countries represented because the USA chapter goes all the way down into South America. One of the clowns was from Brazil. We had a clown from Swaziland, a clown from Sweden. And so we were kind of from all over the place, and that really made us an amazingly dynamic team. There were people from just lots of different backgrounds, different experiences, different cultures. What's one of the most amazing things you've seen a clown do recently that you were kind of floored by? Hmm. Or maybe you're floored every time you see. (laughs) 
Well, what floors me is when I see a clown react to a situation that they're not expecting and they react to it in a perfect way. And so the thing that's sticking in my head right now is a situation that happened in South Sudan where two clowns went to the audience and they got two adults to come out onto the stage and they had a little skit that they were going to perform with these two audience volunteers. And the audience volunteers didn't know what was going on. So they came out onto the floor and just started dancing and just doing their own thing and just having a good old time. And what floored me was that the clowns just completely adapted to it and just started dancing with them and just created a beautiful moment that was not at all what they intended to do, but was way better. It seems like there's almost some like elements of kind of improv to it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> and how can um, we contribute to Clowns Without Borders? Well, there's a couple ways. Um, Clowns Without Borders, just like everybody else, needs as much um, following as possible so that people know that it's there. Um, there's a lot of potential for projects in the U.S. when there's, you know, there's a lot of places where refugees are being resettled here in the U.S. So people with connections there can, you know, call us up. And then, of course, donations. You can go to the website, clownswithoutborders.com, and donate. Great. And um, we're going to actually lighten it up a bit to talk about what you do right here in Boulder. <laughs> sure. That is not with refugees. Mm-hmm. And, um, but you do bring um, juggling and clowning into the lives of children, local children here. So let's get into um, your personal business. Sure. Not personal business, your business. <laughs> and um, it's called the Up Down Circus. Yep. Up Down and Circus. Tell us a little bit about um, what you do there? Sure. Well, it's mostly classes and camps for kids. We don't really have anything for adults right now, but we often have a lot of interest in that. And we do events. Sometimes we do birthday parties and it's, you know, it's fun because we go into lots of different schools. There's lots of schools in Boulder that are really excited about the circus arts. It's kind of a fun form of non-competitive physical education that really works well for kids who, they like to focus on lots of different things at the same time, and that's what helps them focus. Or kids that just have so much energy that they just need to be tooling around on a unicycle. <laughs> and a lot of those kids are really natural clowns. And so we've got a really fun following here in Boulder of parents who have been with us since we started. My husband and I, we started teaching classes here in 2009. Wow. And yeah, some of our kids have now graduated from Stanford and oh my goodness, <laughs> all over the place. Okay, so when watching your videos, I was thinking of the idea of like mastering a craft, whether it's what you do as a juggler, um, an athlete, or a musician. And I'm always wonder, like I always wonder, how many hours you put into mastering something like that, sure. and whether you have to put in as many hours now as you did kind of when you started this whole journey because you're learning new things now I'm sure yeah definitely well when I first started juggling I was practicing at least a couple hours every day and sometimes even more than that so you would just sit there and just juggle yeah or practice the unicycle or whatever juggling ish skill I was working on at the time but mostly juggling, just throwing and catching things for hours and hours. Wow. <laughs> What's the trick to juggling? Because I feel like I've tried it. Is it just like, what kind of thought goes into it, I guess? Or is there no thought? There's. Or is um, it a rhythm? It's partly rhythm. It's par- partially just the spatial understanding of where the juggling balls need to go, what path they need to follow to get back to your hand again. But mostly it's just persistence. Just how much of your life do you want to dedicate really? to learning this stupid skill? <laughs> and then, so so going back, so you put in maybe three hours a day. Mm-hmm. And obviously put in now because it's your profession. Yeah. And so how much is it practicing the craft versus putting together the show? Like what percentage is devoted to each? Um, it, it depends a lot. You know, I've got kind of set shows and set routines that I do now that I've had for a number of years that I don't have to rehearse very much anymore. But um, usually about every year I go back through and I revamp some things and I write some new material. And that takes just as long as the the actual physical rehearsal. 
Yeah, definitely. Is there something you're working on mastering now? You don't have to say what it is, that you're just like, <laughs> this is going to be my new trick or whatever. Yeah. And I'm happy to talk about okay, it. I've yeah. been, um, I've been working with rats. I've been a solo performer for my entire career and I finally decided I need something else alive on stage. <laughs> yeah. And uh didn't have any success finding another performer. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. So hey, let's get some circus rats. So why do you choose rats out of everything? Well, they are so smart, for one thing. They're adorable. And it's just a really easy pet for people to to get close to because they're so small, they're not very scary for kids. And yeah, they're just really smart. They're capable of doing lots of crazy tricks. And how many rats do you have? I have two. Okay. And so how long have you had these rats? I've had them for nine months now. And for the most part, they can walk in a straight line on command (laughs) and they can climb up something on command. And the possibilities with those two skills are endless. So what kind of stunts would you do with the rat? Well, one of the biggest stunts and the most popular one is a large balancing pole. It's a really long pole that I balance on my face, and there's a platform on top. And so the rat starts on my shoulder, and when I put the platform up and I let go with my hands, the rat climbs all the way to the top of the platform. Oh, that's kind of cute. And (laughs) what are your rat's names? They're Sweetie and Hercules. Oh. Yeah, so let's get into the training. So day one... Do you get the rat from the pet store? I did, yes. Okay, and you are like just that one and that one. Yeah, I picked the two that looked like they were exploring the most and the most curious. Yeah. And then so you bring them home. I bring them home and I spend two months convincing them that I'm not evil and that they should just be my friend. So they're <laughs> timid at first. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't tame when I got them. They were mostly sold as snake food. Oh, so that when I got the rats, they hadn't, been, they hadn't been handled by humans very much. And so it just took a couple months for them to So are down. you just like kind of letting them crawl on you and yeah. you're feeding them by hand? Yeah. And just letting them smell me and get comfortable in the space. And then how do you make them do the first quote unquote trick? Well, the first tricks that they learned were motivated by kind of navigating through a maze to get back to their cage. Their cage is home, it's safety, it's where they want to go. So if I have them out on my shoulder, I can, for example, get a two-by-four and make a bridge for them to walk back from my shoulder to their cage. And then they learn that that two-by-four is how they get back home, and then I can move that board somewhere else. And is that just something you thought of, or did you read that in the book? (laughs) No, I just thought of it. I think you're blowing our minds right now. <laughs> I wish the listeners at home could see. We're, Andrew and I are sitting here across from her, and I I don't, like, our mouths are open, and we're just kind of like, like, it's just brilliant and just, like, what would you say, Andrew? I don't know. I, I mean, having, having trained a dog where it's, I mean, a dog is, like, very much food, mo- well, our dog is very much food yeah. motivated. And so it's, you know, basically if you got the treat in front of them, you can get them to do kind of whatever. And then like, it gets that much harder to do anything that's like away from the treat. And so, yeah, I mean, had. So are you giving them treats when you're doing the trick live? No, actually they want to get all the way back to their cage and then I can give them a treat, but they're motivated to do the tricks just simply to get back, get back home. And do you think you're considered the home too, or is it strictly their cage, if that makes sense? There's kind of a hierarchy. If they can't find their home, if they can't smell it, I'm kind of the next best thing. <laughs> but yeah, if, if I'm near the cage, they, they want to go back home. And so each, each of these tricks, right? So you've got the one where they climb up and then end up on the platform. Uh, like how do they, how do you kind of set it up so that they know given whatever the setup is that here's what they're supposed to do. Is it always kind of like a a variation or is there some kind of cue for them? It's more just as soon as the opportunity for them to do the thing is there. So as soon as the pole is there, they can smell it. Oh, they know it's there. They climb right up it. No hesitation. That's 
again, my mind's blown. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> they are really fun animals, and they're so smart, and they're so curious. One of my favorite things is that they actually get bored and a little aggravated with me if I'm not coming up with new puzzles and mazes for them to solve. They just kind of get bored and lazy, so they really like to do new stuff all the time. So what other tricks would you do with a rat? Uh, various mazes going through different kinds of tubes. One of the things I'm working on right now is getting them to um, pull string so that maybe wow. they could open a latch or they could pull the other rat on a skateboard. <laughs> we'll see what happens. That's incredible. Are you the only juggler in Boulder that uses rats? Yes, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I think... I think there might be another lady in the U.S. that does rat circus sorts of things, but it's kind of different stunts. She went about it in a different way, and they do different sorts of tricks, and so it's really cool. I mean, I think as an animal lover, again, I'm amazed at your skills, but the rats are reason enough to just go and hire you or check you out <laughs> in either online. Are the rats online right now? And any of, I haven't seen them in any of your YouTube clips or maybe I just missed that. Yeah. They're new enough that I'm not um, promoting them too much because oh. I want to make sure that we've got the exact right stage yeah. before I take them out. You know, I'm not so great with them outdoors yet. I don't have protection for them from hawks and such oh. that sort of thing. So I'm keeping them under wraps and just bringing them out for very specific shows for now. <laughs> Do they bite? No. So they've never bit you before? Um, Sweetie will bite me if she gets really like annoyed if I haven't put down the bridge and she knows that it's That's coming. That's incredible. She'll get annoyed. So <laughs> she'll just go beep, 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 beep. She'll, she comes over here and kind of tries to get my lips or something like that because <laughs> they'll be sitting here and... So they do have a personality. They really do. So tell me about each one's personality. Um, sweetie is, you might want to edit this out. She's the basic bitch rat. Oh, maybe <laughs> so not. She, <laughs> so she just knows how to walk in a straight line and she's more motivated by food than Hercules is. And she's just kind of dumb. <laughs> Hercules is, she's smarter, but she's also moody. So you have two girls, yeah. so they're not going to breed? No. Okay. No. And so say, say that again with Hercules. Hercules is a little bit more moody, um, but she's also more curious and she's easier to train. She's a little bit more bonded to me, and so she'll, she'll do <laughs> whatever weird things I have in mind. So are you considering getting more rats or more animals and to work into the routine? Um, well, rats only live a year or two. So it's going to be time oh. to get some more rats oh, pretty so soon, sad. probably. I know, it's very sad. Um, eventually, if it seems like people really like animals in the circus again, then, you know, maybe it'd be a good fit. I feel like people are pretty nervous about that, and there's a lot of people who really don't even like the idea of pets performing. Do you care to talk about the Barnum and Bailey what's going on with, um, they're not having any more animals in their circus right now. Is They've that actually shut down completely. Oh, they shut down completely. As of about, I think two or three months ago, they did their final show. They and, just, and what do you feel? Do you have any emotions towards that situation or? Um, well, I had never seen them as a kid, so I don't have any nostalgia built into it, but I do have a lot of friends who, performed with Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey, and good friends who went to clown school there. And so in a way, I think it's really sad that this long tradition is, tr I think it's really sad that this long tradition is ending. But at the same time, I really like the alternatives right now, like Cirque du Soleil. There's a lot of really cool, smaller artistic circus companies that are filling in the gaps. And it feels like the, the culture is just changing in the circus world. So it doesn't seem too sad to me. So getting into, you talked about Barnum and Bailey um, Circus and they have a clown school. Not anymore, but they, they did. did have a clown school, but you went to actually clown school in 2014 in San Francisco. Yeah. And um, so how did, how does one get into a clown school? 
Well, there's not very many, so there is a pretty good application process just to make sure that you're in there for the right thing. And uh, the clown school that I went to, I think that there were about 20 of us. We were there for five weeks studying for, you know, 40 hours a week. And then we were working on our own to write material for our show, um, collaborating with each other to come up with new material. Um, it was a very physically grueling process of learning how to fall down and get back up and in very acrobatic ways. Um, so what does a day look like in clown school? Um, a lot of clowning is about um, connecting with the audience through emotion. And so a lot of really good clown work is just learning to express those emotions, learning to see it on other people and just connect in those ways. So it's actually pretty heavy and pretty deep process. Um, a lot of the work is just exploring what's uniquely dumb and stupid about you as an individual, which is also very emotionally charged. You know, if you have a silly tick or you walk in a strange way, you're probably going to try and heighten that, which is So hard. how do you discover your silly tick? Through the, the instructor's the clown school that I went to in San Francisco and the clown workshops that I've taken here in Boulder, the instructors are just amazing at helping you find those things. How do you take so you, I'm not going to say you have someone ripping you apart, but to say like, <laughs> if I'm like, Oh, my nose is too big, you know, or something like that. And they're like, accentuate your nose. Cause it's really big. Um, how do you take it as not putting down like the way you feel about yourself or, you know, I don't know if I'm making sense. Yeah. And that's a big struggle. I think it's about just coming to terms with those things that are silly about each and every person. And by, you know, giving yourself permission to laugh at yourself, then you give other people permission to laugh at you. I just want to say, I think we all as humans need clown school <laughs> in that regard. If we can yes. like be taught as teenagers, especially when you're growing into the adult person you are and learning to love yourself as the person you are. Um, so, so when I hear what you're saying, it just sounds like therapy to me. It really kind of is. And I think a lot of people take clowning workshops for that reason. Not everybody is in it because they want to be an entertainer or a performer. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes. For some people, it's more of a personal exploration or, you know, even trauma healing. Wow. Yeah. So um, you're meeting people from like, all, you're meeting people all across the board. So yeah. what percentage of the people there do it professionally then? Hmm, a very small percentage, actually. Um, because, for one thing, clowning isn't very popular in the U.S. It's a lot more popular, honestly, everywhere else in the world than it is here. And so it's, it's pretty tough to make a living as a clown, whether you're doing birthday parties as a crazy wig and makeup clown, or you're doing a more eccentric theatrical clown. I think both of those are actually really tough in the U.S. Do you mind if we get involved in... Talking about the emotional exploration part and sure. how it impacted your life. Sure. Because I'm pretty fascinated with that. So when, oh, okay. So when did you discover that juggling and stuff was much more than just kind of the physical work and that there was so much emotional going on with it? Well, I started to understand pretty quickly as a performer that people only care about things being thrown in the air for so long and then their eyes glaze over and they they're done watching that you know it can only last for a few minutes and so you need to have other ways to be with the audience you know connecting with them to find laughter together or in some cases to find other emotions like sadness you know whatever is in your show um and a lot of jugglers they will go the route of comedy you know they're telling jokes and things like that um, I didn't really enjoy comedy very much. I'm not a verbal comedian sort of person. And so I was looking to clowning as a way to just create fun during my show when I'm not juggling. So with the clowning school, like what's, what's kind of the arc of that? Like how much of it is, you know, sort of somebody develop, is it, is the idea that like you would leave kind of with a completed performance or is it just there's certain skills that they're trying to teach you that, you know, some of that, how to read a room or is it more technical and is it, you know, how to busk? 
Um, it's a little bit more like the first couple things that you said where, you know, some of us are really trying to get some material that we can then take directly into our show and make money with that. Some of it is just learning stage presence. And, you know, it depends on the person what specific things they're getting out of it. For me, I, I learned a lot about pace and how to read the audience and understand what pace they want to see things at. And do they want new stuff every two seconds? Or do they want a more casual, normal pace? Can I ask how you're able to read a room? Or is it just so technical that you can't even explain it on mic? Well, I think it's something that you can learn. I think you just learn to read different things in the audience. You can feel them breathing when everyone, you know that you have them you know that they're paying attention to you. Um, if they're yawning a lot, maybe they're not paying attention so much. Breath is a really good way to just see where people are at focus-wise. Would you say what you do has made you more emotionally aware? Because I'm also thinking while we're talking, like you must be able to read people so much better than maybe me or Andrew or a normal person who doesn't do what you're doing. Well, I don't know that I would go that far, but I can definitely say that I'm more in tune to that sort of thing than I was before. Does it make you, like, how do you feel? I don't want to put words into your mouth. When you kind of see the, the glaze over and people are starting to become not interested. When I see that, which, which honestly isn't too often, thankfully, but when I see that, I think of that as a reflection of me. I think, okay, what other way can I engage these people because what I'm doing right now isn't working. And it's cool to be a solo performer because I can just change my entire show on a whim and just do something completely different that I think might reach people better. And um, so I listen to a couple comedy podcasts and the comedians say that they're able to kind of read the room before they go on stage. Do you feel like you're able to a little bit with what you do? Yeah, definitely. Um, if I'm in a show where there are multiple performers, like a variety show, you know, you can get a sense of how communicative the audience is ahead of time. You know, maybe they're enjoying it a lot, but they're enjoying it silently. <laughs> you can kind of get a feel for that. Um, a lot of my performances are outside, and so you can kind of just get a feel for, okay, are the people mingling well? Are people laughing and having fun? Are they nervous about the weather? Are they nervous about politics? So many things prevent people from engaging with arts. I want to kind of reflect back to you growing up because with what you do, you have so much <laughs> energy and just even you walk into a room, I, you know, you have such a presence. Did you always have that growing up? And this just happened to be your path to be an entertainer <laughs> of a way to kind of shine so bright? <laughs> well, I was a middle child. So maybe there was a lot of, uh, you know, loudness getting attention. <laughs> uh, yeah, I definitely had a lot of energy when I was a kid, and I was really outgoing as well. I really liked um, meeting new people all the time. My mom has a funny story that I don't remember of me just going up at a park and introducing myself as, Hi, my name is Happy! And <laughs> just talking to random people. Um, I definitely have a lot of physical energy, though, so it's usually easier for me to, to manage my life if I'm up juggling and unicycling a lot. So when I was a kid, that was true, too. And is there um, a performer that you remember growing up that, because you said you never um, like knew jugglers or whatever or watched them, looking back, was there anyone growing up that that kind of gave you the idea maybe when you started juggling that maybe you wanted to perform? Well, honestly, I grew up in a really small rural town in Kansas, and I had never seen any kind of um, performance like that. Um, but I did have a lot of inspirations just from TV. We watched a lot of Charlie Chaplin and Marx Brothers, Laurel and Hardy, and all those guys. And so I think I'm definitely inspired by that kind of comedy and that kind of fun. And do you still revisit those movies today? Sometimes, yeah. It's still, it's classic. 
And um, I'm going to jump around again. Um, do you remember your first performance and how you <laughs> felt and how that went? Uh, yeah, I do. It was terrible. It was a really bad performance. It was a little juggling act. It was a duet with a guy I was dating at the time. And both of us could juggle four balls a little bit. We weren't very good. And we just dropped over and over and over again. And where was this? This was at my college, uh, Kansas State University. There was a juggling club there, and we had a juggling festival. And this was just a small little performance for fellow jugglers, which was almost more mm. nerve-wracking to perform for your peers. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a terrible act. I think it's on video somewhere. <laughs> That's awesome. And do you still get nervous before a performance? Not usually. No, if it's a high pressure performance or if I'm debuting something new that I feel really strongly about and I really want it to go really well, sometimes I'll get nervous. Um, I actually started incorporating more music into my show. Um, I play trumpet a little bit and I wanted to put that in there and I get nervous every time that trumpet comes close to my face. <laughs> what are you doing while you play the trumpet? Um, I'm juggling or clowning, oh, man. doing weird, weird things. <laughs> Again, like through this interview, Andrew and I are just both shaking our heads in awe because like I mean, I try to play the trumpet and that by itself is like hard enough. So then I'm like, okay, what do you have one hand that you're just kind of using to Oh my god. So she's uh so yeah, she's, yeah. literally uh she's one mimicking hand it. Throwing in a, in a she's one hand juggling and then like playing the trumpet with the other hand and Legs are still free for a unicycle. Jeez. <laughs> so just, yeah, to get into that, right? So how do you, I mean, you know, it's like, you, you know, you know, some people are just like good athletes. Like I've got one friend that, you know, rollerblades, like went to the X Games for rollerblades and, you know, then like, of course is a great artist. And, <laughs> you know, it's like you get those people that like, they have like that, a bunch of different skills and then. Like Michael Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. We're just stacking and then trying to stack those up. Like what, I mean, do you, do you feel like kind of compelled to sort of push yourself to like, what, what more can you do? Yeah. Well, I feel like at this point in my life, I kind of consider myself a skill collector. I really enjoy being able to do even just the basics of different skills. You know, I'll go try and learn how to ski just so I say, I know the basics of it. And so I'm, I might be more motivated towards that sort of thing. But I think that you can learn how to learn more efficiently, more effectively. And juggling is actually what has helped me with that. I feel like I can pick up other skills a little bit more quickly than I could before just because of all of the juggling training. you have any sort of tips for uh, what, what, you know, you jump into <laughs> something new? Like what do, you, what do you do to sort of get yourself up to speed quick on it? You know, one of the things that holds a lot of people back when learning a new skill this is true for me too, is just that we don't like to look dumb. We don't like to fail, especially in front of other people. You know, people are going to a Pilates class and they're kind of hiding in the corner because they don't want people to see them suck at it. But maybe because of clown training, whatever it is, I just don't care. I'll just fail over and over again until I get it. My uh, attempts at learning to skateboard, uh, I would say, were thwarted <laughs> by exactly that. That falling down at the crosswalk in front of a bunch of people, like... Yeah, I'm like, maybe I'll just take the bus today. I will not try to <laughs> try to ride the skateboard. And I think it's interesting, especially living in Boulder, like with something like Pilates or yoga is like, it's probably like this in a lot of places, but you walk into a yoga studio in Boulder and people are bending, you know, their, their bodies in half. And it makes me just want to walk out that door <laughs> or like you said, put my mat in the corner. And, but I mean, you're... So again, what's interesting about this conversation is we talked about clowning of what you did, but there's, it, it's just this whole conversation is just life lessons. Mm. And so that's why I just want to kind of keep, <laughs> keep you talking because I'm just learning so much. And it's so true. It's like, we're all just, we're all worried about failing. It's one of the things that I hear the most when you know, I'm standing there juggling 
whatever context and people just see it out of the corner of their eye or whatever, so often people just say, I could never do that. And, you know, I know it's probably kind of cheesy, but with that attitude, of course you won't. <laughs> so what is like a mantra we can tell ourselves in everyday life that if we want to pick up juggling or we want to go to that Pilates class, like, so you want to pick up the trumpet while juggling with one hand, <laughs> what do you tell yourself before? I mean, you're so probably used to, I don't want to say it's trying it and failing, but like trying new things that Maybe you don't have a mantra, but for those of us that want to go out there today and start a podcast or, yeah. you know what I mean? Or try running for the first time, try juggling. Like what's a mantra we can tell ourselves? Just be patient with yourself. Everyone started off just being really terrible at whatever it is that they're really good at now. So just be patient with yourself through, through the suck. <laughs> yeah. So... Just getting back to the people you've met, you must have such a strong community. Yeah, definitely. And is it, it's all around this country? It's all over the world. I've traveled to some really fun places and a lot of times I'm just couch surfing with jugglers that I've never even met or, you know, making lifelong friendships with clowns that I've only been working with for three weeks. And yeah, it's a really strong community. And how do you like connect? You say, oh, let's meet up and do a performance together or we're going to do a showcase or, um, it or really is it depends. different? Yeah. yeah, it really depends. For me, a lot of times I'm getting hired by people who are putting on a specific event and they're also hiring these other performers or these other clowns or whatever. And so we just happen to be in the same place at the same time and, okay, we got to write this show together. And in that process of, you know, showing your art and being vulnerable, putting all that out, you just make really good connections. And do you think you share one characteristic with all the rest of the people you meet? And that's why you all were led to this profession. Is it like you're all outgoing or are there, are there shy clowns or? Yeah, there's definitely shy clowns <laughs> for sure. I would say in general, just a willingness to play. That's really, can you elaborate on that? <laughs> well, I suppose just, I'm imagining this scenario in my head of a family of four walking down the street and, you know, maybe there's a, a slide or something or something, a wall or something, and the kids jump up and play on it and the parents don't. And why is that? <laughs> and I think that there are a lot of adults who maintain that spirit of play, willingness to play. And when you do that, you just create fun for anybody, especially yourself. So you mentioned off mic that you went to clown school with Patch Adams' son. Yeah. And so he's, is he a doctor as well or is he? He, his son is, I think, just a full-time clown. And Patch Adams does a lot of kind of similar work to Clowns Without Borders. They go to a lot of hospitals in just poverty-stricken areas and areas of crises. And so I think that's what he does for the most part is he's doing a lot of those sorts of projects and volunteering and doing a lot of um, other arts-based performances. When did you guys start clown school? Like what age? Um, well, we teach clowning with kids a little bit, but I think a lot of the deep emotional work you really can't do until you're an adult. Yeah. But what about the juggling school and stuff? The juggling, we start most kids at about age eight. Okay. We do have some classes that are for kids younger than that, but. And what do you teach them when they're younger? When they're younger, we do more like simpler things like balance beams. There's a prop called spinning plates that they hold onto a stick and you balance a plate on top. And, you know, some of those are a little really bit easier. Cute. And so what kind of stuff do you do with kids with autism and Asperger's? Well, in a lot of those cases, um, the kids really gravitate to a specific thing. Like it seems like there will be a specific prop that just feels natural in their hand that they're really comfortable exploring. And like right now, a lot of kids are into fidget spinners and it's, it seems so silly, but it's, it's kind of, to me, like a watered down version of these skill toys, like a yo-yo or anything like that, you know? So Becca, where can we find you online? Well, you can follow me on Instagram or Facebook. It's uh, Becca Juggler, B-E-K-A-H. And then I also have a website, BeccaJuggler.com. 
there's uh, updownsircus.com and uh, Clowns Without Borders has a lot of good blog posts also. And um, Becca, here at Plug In Colorado, we always end the episode by asking our special guests the same question. So Becca, what is one of your favorite things or places in Colorado that others might not know about? (laughs) I actually just visited this place recently, so it's fresh on my mind. It's called Bishop's Castle. And some people have heard of it. If people have heard of it, it's usually one of their go-to like tourist trap destinations. And it's just this crazy, huge, weird castle that this man built in a national forest in near, near Pueblo. And it's just kind of in the middle of nowhere. And it's amazing. And it's, to me, it's just, it embodies the creative energy of one person so well. It's the biggest structure ever made by one individual person. Becca, you are a shining star <laughs> and a shining light in this world. That's really kind. And Thank you. we need more people like you doing their thing. So thank you so much for what you do. And thank you so much for the life lessons. <laughs> and thank you so much for joining us at Plug In Colorado. Anytime. Thank you so much for having me. Guys, thank you so much for listening. That is our show for the day. I want to reiterate that if you have a little spare cash, even if it's a quarter, a dollar, $500, donate to Clowns Without Borders. It's a great cause. It brings joy and happiness to people across the world. As for our show, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Plug In Colorado and visit our website, PluginColorado.com. Our theme music is by the Boulder band, Carry Me Ohio. Our engineer on mic and co-host. and co-host now is Andrew Morton. And I am your main host. That's right, folks. Main host, head honcho, as they say in Spanish, jefe, Deanna Morton, reminding you to plug in Colorado. We'll see you soon. <laughs>